in this effort this morning to examine the true gospel of Christ, exposing the false gospel of works so that we will truly exalt the Savior and evangelize the lost. Point number one, I just simply want you to see the false gospel of works, the true simplification of social justice and the gospel. In my lifetime, I have come across one truly faithful Roman Catholic, only one. I mean, you know what's been going on the last five years. The Pope has been exposed for not being Catholic. It's not the media. It's Roman Catholic organizations that are calling the Pope out for his abandonment of Catholicism, much less Christianity. But in truth, the Roman Church is still committed to that which was put in stone. As much as it can be, this is, and it is a curse upon those who would embrace Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So look with me at the Council of Trent. Of course we would go there. If anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because that he assuredly believed, that's the key term, that's the operative term, that he believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified but he who believes himself justified, and that by this sola fide, absolution and justification are affected, meaning applied, let him be accursed, let him be anathema. This is what Rome believes, friends. This is the truth of Roman doctrine. You say, we've got so many problems with the Roman church. That's right. I mean, lots and lots. We won't get into that this morning, but this is the fundamental issue. It's a false gospel. It is the antichrist gospel. It is the ultimate false gospel because it's a gospel that not only leads to works, it's the gospel that requires works in order to receive salvation, to receive reconciliation, to receive redemption. It's something you earn. Now you're wondering, who is that true Catholic? My friend Chris Parkening and I years ago had attempted to minister to a friend of his. He's actually a close friend of Chris's from years back. And Chris said to me, would you tag team this for me? Would you take this? Because I know you love this stuff. And so his friend and I started writing letters back and forth. This was 25 years ago. And this guy was a true Catholic. And he did everything he could to focus on the book of James so as to dismiss Romans 4. James saying that you're justified by works. James is not talking about spiritual justification that takes place in the moment and in that transaction where God saves you. James is addressing the reality that men will know you by your works. The justification of your justification, so to speak, is your works. It's not hard at all to read that in context, but this guy back then was with all of the passages that deal with the reality that justification comes by faith alone. There's a twisting of the text. Let this be a truly a, a peg, a major peg upon which this whole matter should hang, an understanding that the false gospel is the idea that justification comes by works. You earn it. Let's just say it that way. You earn it somehow. You've achieved it. Now, we're going to talk about a lot that flows out of this from this point, but that's what you need to understand. The false gospel is a gospel of works. There's so much we could discuss leading up to that, but that's the issue. Now, let's look at some terms here. 
the social gospel, and you see my definition based on a lot of reading recently in the last uh, several months, the idea that by engaging in urban societal reform and applying biblical principles, there's always that idea that you smatter whatever your presupposition is with Bible, you know, you sanitize it with scripture, so to speak. Um, that makes it right, and it's very effective. Many people will look at what someone says and they'll walk away saying, well, there was a lot of Bible. Have you heard, you've heard that, right? You, know, you express your concerns about Joyce Meyer or Beth Moore, and someone will say, but she teaches the Bible. Oh, and she helped me so much. And you've got to have a relationship with that person to be able to help that person discern the problems with that. This is very true of the idea of the social gospel. Again, the idea that by engaging in urban and societal reform and applying biblical principles, salvation will be applied to the recipients of those efforts. Now, just this morning, I saw an article, and I want to read some of it to you, entitled, Church of England to Offer Baptism-Style Services to Transgender People to Celebrate Their New Identity for First Time. This is social gospel, okay? The point is, they've gone beyond the idea of loving the sinner, making a place for the sinner to remain comfortable, in fact, to become comfortable, in fact, to become proud of his sin. The article goes on, The Church of England has encouraged its clergy to create baptism-style ceremonies for transgender people to welcome them into the Anglican faith. New pastoral guidance published on Tuesday advises clergy to refer to transgender people by their new name though it stops short of being a baptism. Now, if you've been reading about this at all, you know that this has just turned into absolute lunacy. Uh, people are requiring that you no longer call babies babies, but you call them thabies, thabies, uh, so as to uh, create a pathway for the child eventually to determine his own pronouns by which he would require you to refer to him. So he's a thaby or she. Oh, I can't say those words. There's so many new pronouns that it's beyond lunacy. It's impossible. And the concept of LBGTQ now I think has nine or ten letters in it. I don't know what they all stand for. But that's only going to get longer. Eventually you'd hope that the people who are promoting that would realize that it is beyond the ability of a human being to even understand it, much less maintain some understanding. Uh, the article goes on to say, the guidance which was proposed by the House of Bishops on Monday night also details how elements including water and oil can be incorporated into the service. It also advises that a part of a special service, they can be presented with gifts such as a Bible inscribed in their chosen name or a certificate. The guidance notes, for a trans person to be addressed liturgically by the minister for the first time by their chosen name may be a powerful moment in the service. Just this last week, another elder and I were, were speaking uh, about this topic, and he said, hey, there's a church in Riverside that completely fits the concept of social justice. In fact, when you go to their website, you see the term social justice. That's what they're about. You know, where's this idea of social justice in the Bible? And some would say, well, aren't we supposed to serve 
people? Aren't we supposed to help people? Aren't we supposed to love and give to the poor? Absolutely. And those things are byproducts of Christ's love for us, our love for him, and our willingness to serve others. But this concept has two major problems with it. One, it's not the gospel. The implications of the gospel are that you serve out of having been saved by Christ's atoning death and by his resurrection. But the service that you engage is not the gospel itself. Uh, Many of you have heard the phrase often attributed to Francis of Assisi. Share the gospel and sometimes use words. It's nonsense. The gospel is reflected in words. Some have said, you know, I'm just living out the gospel. No, you're not. Neither am I living out the gospel. Even if I did die on a cross, and even if I was physically resurrected, that would not be the gospel. The gospel is that the God-man died a vicarious atoning death and was resurrected unto new life. That's the gospel. And the implications are that you and I would die unto our sin. We would die unto unrighteousness, and we would live unto God. We would live unto righteousness that then we would love and sacrifice and serve others. So the one major problem here is that social justice is not the gospel. The other major problem is that moving into the concept of of the social gospel, organizations that call themselves churches are now embracing sin, blatant sin. This is why sola scriptura matters. My friend from high school would tell you sola scriptura was never part of the Christian faith. No, it's always been part of the Christian faith. It was never part of the Roman Catholic movement. But sola scriptura is where we live. That's where we rest. There's so much more to this article. I won't read the rest of it. You can look it up if you like. Here's what's even worse. See, that's the false church, the Anglican church. The Church of England is a false church. But there are those in conservative, legitimate, Christian evangelicalism who have, as recently as within the last year, engaged in a conference for Christians under the name of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, I'm as perplexed as anybody that a Christian conference could be named for a man who is committed to civil rights is a little odd to begin with. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that Martin Luther King Jr. was a well-known adulterer on top of having rejected the resurrection and the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And Martin Luther King Jr. promoted the idea that Jesus was not God and that he wasn't even actually really resurrected. Puzzling, is it not? That well-known, long-time faithful, conservative, effective Christian leaders engaged in a conference named for Martin Luther King Jr., and you can only imagine what came from the pulpit during that conference. A big part of this whole deal is what do we do with those folks? You know, because some of those men are men that we love and trust and 
we've learned from these are good men. And if you have struggled with this, I commend you for seeking counsel from godly people with how to think about it. Because the person who would say, well, why do we you know, uh, still affirm them, but we don't affirm other people? Well, the reason there are other people that we don't affirm, it's because they've engaged in heresy. So we would not promote those men. When you talk about social gospel and social justice, the guys that we would say, not a Christian, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, those folks, there are other men that I would probably encourage you to avoid. Well-known Christian leaders that, in my opinion, are not only showing a lack of discernment and weakness in this area, but have made me question whether or not they are at all committed to the gospel Secondary separation is separates from those who don't separate from those that they think they should be separating from. You know, in other words, you don't only separate from the people that are false converts, you're separating from people who don't separate from people who are false converts. That's a problem. We don't do that. We don't separate from people because of who they associate with. We separate from people because they're false converts. They prove to be false converts. Scripture mandates that. So the next term is social justice. This is the implementation of justice or good with equity for all mankind. That there must be equality across the board. And so there are those who will demand social justice. Organizations born out of this concept back in the, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, I'm not making any comment about the value of those organizations. I'm simply saying that that's where they started. They started with a commitment, you know, provide a, a shower and a meal for a guy, right? And if we can uh, teach him some Bible along the way, then that would be good too. But the whole idea was that they're reforming the man by cleaning him up physically and mentally and socially. The term that became popular in the 80s in the psychology world was behavior modification. And that was born out of the social gospel. You wonder why is Todd often up in arms about the idea of behavior modification. This is part of, of why. The idea of social justice says you're a victim and you need to capitalize on that. Emphasize your victimization. Be the victim. Poor me. You know, regardless of the circumstance especially promoted among the poor, calls for wealth redistribution in many cases, among homosexuals, transgender folks, women. You know, many have said if you're a white male, uh, then there's no hope for you to be considered a victim, um, and yet there are white males certainly endeavoring to find their own niche of victimization. They'll figure it out some way. Proclaim that you self-identify as a black woman who's homosexual and transgender. I mean, as, as crazy as this whole thing has gotten, that, that could easily be uh, validated by those in those cultures. Because as much as the spiritually liberal folks have embraced liberal politics with things like global warming and you know, demanding a focus upon science, 
those same people want nothing to do with the science of anatomy that really simplifies the matter of determining what gender someone is. I was puzzled about four years ago to see that some Christians that I knew were proclaiming that whether someone is a boy or a girl is really kind of up for discussion. It's unbelievable. But declare yourself to be identified in a particular category and be the victim. That's what social justice calls you to do. Oh, and, and by the way, in that concept, you must do reparations if you're guilty of social injustice. But listen to this. You've got work to do even if you didn't do it because you're still guilty. Even if you didn't do it because your grandparents did. If my great-grandfather was involved in slavery and your great-grandfather was a slave to him or to someone, I owe you an apology. First of all, I don't owe you an apology for that. Second, I don't have any awareness of the remotest possibility that my great-grandfather was involved in something like that. But even if I did, I didn't have anything to do with that. I wasn't born until after he died. So you've got to do reparations based on your ancestral guilt, which you have inherited. And some, listen, some will go so far as to engage in the spiritual allegorization of the concept of inherited sin and say in the same way that you inherited sinfulness from Adam, the sinful condition from Adam, you inherited it from your great-grandfather. And then they'll go to the book of Genesis and say that the sins of the fathers do what? Visit their sons into what? The third and fourth generation. That's why you need our class in hermeneutics if you've been bamboozled by that idea. There's nothing in that text that gives any indication that you are somehow guilty of your grandfather's sins. It also does not indicate that you have a proclivity with regard to your grandfather's sins to engage in the same sins. And many people have justified or really washed over the idea of uh, drunkenness, saying, well, I inherited that from my dad who inherited it from his dad. Well, look at Genesis. It says the sins of the father will visit the sons to the third and fourth generations. He's talking about the implications of the sins, that the sins of Israel would have implications, would produce difficulty in their children's lives. You know that as a sinner who has children yourself. Your sins impacted, maybe still impact your children. Mine do. But you are not guilty for what your dad did, your great-grandfather, or your brother Interesting how folks will associate some with the sins of their relatives. But bizarre to go back generations. But the way it's a problem in the spiritual context is that people will engage in misuse of the Bible. The guy who just looks for passages, really verses, that's usually his term. Well, I found these verses right, to support what I say. This is why we endeavor to engage in legitimate hermeneutics, legitimate exposition based upon faithful dealing with the text of Scripture. 
The next term you see there in your notes is hate speech. These are words interpreted as intentionally hateful by those who choose to be offended by them. That's my definition. You'll find other definitions. You may have your own, but that's exactly what's going on. Why call it hate speech? Why not just call it wrong if that's what it is? If I say something to you that was inappropriate, address the essence of what I said. Why accuse me of hating you? Now, certainly there are things that have been said that can legitimately be interpreted as being hateful, for sure, especially when you consider tone, facial expressions, you know, potential physical harm coming concomitantly with it. But to simply categorize all kinds of things as hate speech, and this is where this has gone spiritually, not just in the world, but in the church. Anytime we talk about what the Bible says about particular sins, it's considered hate speech. And so it really guts the ability of the pastor or even any Christian to address sin in someone's life. Oh, you're just hating on me. Microaggression. What in the world is that? If you were to think this term through, it's exactly what you would think it would be. It's those seemingly smaller yet aggressive efforts to produce harm against someone. It's subtle. It's the idea that people in their insensitivity use particular terms, offend and marginalize others with subtle but negative and even derogatory comments with undertones of racism or discrimination. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, they offend by marginalizing people with using terms that they shouldn't be using. You know, you can't use the term African-American in certain circles. Years ago, this is about 20 years ago, there was a small time during which some black people that I knew were requiring me to call them people of color, when just a few years earlier to call someone colored would have been grossly offensive, and I think it still is. And I'm by no means belittling the significance of what black people have gone through over the many, many years. That's not what we're talking about here. But the point is this. No matter what your culture, it's far better for you, and we'll get more into this when we talk about the actual gospel, it's far better for you to be willing to overlook an offense. Microaggression says that there's a list of terms and phrases that you can't use because in using them, whether or not you mean to be mean to me, it's hurtful. So be careful what you say. Now, there's some truth to that idea. We need to be sensitive about what we say. We need to be very careful about our use of words. I Believe it or not, I try very, very hard to be very careful about every word I use, whether it's publicly or privately. And I still fail, I'm sure. So we're not saying throw caution to the wind and choose to be insensitive. In fact, quite the opposite. We're not talking about the responsibility of a person with regard to whether or not he should be using certain terms that others would deem to be offensive. We're talking about the person who chooses to be offended. So let's talk about you and me, right? Let's choose not to be offended rather than being committed to accusing others of microaggression. Well, I know it didn't sound like it was offensive, but it actually was. 
How dare you use my middle name and mispronounce it? Have you heard about this uh, gal who named her kid ABCDE? Have you heard about this? And she was offended because someone called the child ABCDE for mispronouncing it when the name is actually Absidy. You heard about Ladasha? Ladasha? The name is spelled L-A dash, not the word dash, but L-A, you know, the little hyphen looking thing, right? A, and it's pronounced Ladasha. Now, name your kid what you want. You'll get to deal with that in about 15 years. But to get upset with someone because they mispronounced it when they were just, you know, doing the best they could phonetically based on written reality. See, that's accusing someone of microaggression. Intersectionality, this is a term you wouldn't be able to determine the meaning of if you were just to think it through. It's the idea that some people are victims of multiple injustices due to being marginalized in multiple categories. This is why if a white male were to choose to be offended, or if, if he were to choose to pursue some sort of effort to be categorized as a victim, he would, he would choose the category I mentioned earlier. You know, the, the intersectionality is the idea that I'm a victim in multiple ways. Uh, my victim status intersects with my victim status multiple times. Woke, this is just really, really bad grammar. It's an awareness of social injustice enabling one to participate in social justice. And so, you know, you may be accused of not being woke. That's your problem. You're, you're white male, therefore you're not woke. You can't be. By the way, I'm not proud of being a white male. I'm not ashamed of it. I don't care. And now, truth is, I'd rather be a man than a woman just because I am. You know, like we're even talking, am I really talking about this out loud? <laughs> Marxism. And so some are being, I think, accurately accused of Marxism. The theory that societal problems are the result of capitalism, which creates societal classes. Marxism says do away with the classes and everybody will be happy. You know, it's funny. When I was a kid, I can remember kind of thinking that, that that would be better. But just so you remember, I was a kid. I can remember thinking, man, if I didn't have to work... For a moment, go back with me two weeks to Han's message on ethnicity, identity in Jesus. You know, I don't know that Han said it exactly as I've said it, you know, identity doesn't matter. And I'm not really saying it doesn't matter. I'm simply saying that there's a sense in which it's very, very much overemphasized. I um, wondered about our church back in June because I was engaging with a guy on Facebook in a pastor's Facebook page, there was a significant problem brewing within a, uh, a well-known conservative group of Christian pastors. And it seemed like there was a split right down the middle, and it was very troubling. One man in particular was seeming to kind of head the thing up, and 
I'm not sure, and I didn't accuse him because I wasn't sure, but it seemed as if he might have been accusing me of nurturing something in the realm of white supremacy in the church that I pastor. Again, I didn't get into the discussion because I couldn't have been sure, but it sure seemed like it. I think he was committing a microaggression against me. I'm not sure. <laughs> so I didn't say anything about it, but I, but I wondered. We had just sent 29 people to Camp Regent. They stood here and took a picture, and I thought, this is a microcosmic expression of our church, right? Kids of the parents, much in the same ethnic realm as their parents. 29. And, I, and so, so I start counting. How many of these are non-Caucasian people? And I thought, I, honestly, I got to tell you, I had never thought about this in seven years. It hadn't crossed my mind. Not once. Not once. I mean, and like Han talked about, we, we ought not to be focusing on producing an ethnically diverse church. Why? If it happens, let it happen. Focus on what God gives us. Shepherd the flock of God among you. So I started wondering, are we a mostly white church? I kind of thought maybe we were. Of the 29 faces, the 29 souls in that picture, 14 were non-Caucasian. 14. Now, I'm not going to ask you to take a picture today so I can count you. But Han said it, Carl said it, others have said it. It's amazing how ethnically diverse you are. And some people might think that we set out to do that, but I promise you, I promise you, if you were to talk to any of the men that sat with me around the elder table when we first planted this church and those who do it to this day, they would tell you this topic has not come up one time in seven years other than in the last couple of months where I've been talking about this series that we would do. I wonder if rather than pressing for the idea that a race discussion is pertinent to and necessarily derived from a devotion to the gospel, I wonder if it might be better to simply consider others regardless of race as more important than self. Then to be willing to discuss with a devotion to the gospel what others wish to discuss within spirit-filled reason. Let them discuss what they want to discuss while we treat them well. If they want to discuss racism, let's discuss that. There is a push among some well-known and significantly influential Christian leaders to require Christians to move, if not by personal conviction, then by coercion from being willing to discuss race to mandatorily initiating race discussions because doing so is somehow intrinsic to gospel faithfulness. That's what's happening. With this push based on one's race and the tightly wound criteria of those making the push, some are simply not qualified to contribute to the discussion, but because of their race must simply comply with the demands of those who are qualified. In other words, seeking forgiveness for their ancestors' sins, regardless of whether or not there is evidence of their ancestors' guilt, and making a lifelong commitment to seeking forgiveness with no expectation of ever actually being forgiven. So you're hogtied for life. 
stuck being required to seek forgiveness for sins you didn't commit, but never having the opportunity to actually be forgiven for those sins, always held accountable for them, always guilty for them. That's what some well-known Christian leaders are doing that has led me to wonder whether or not they're Christian leaders. So there's no real avenue to actually discuss the gospel for those who can never sufficiently make reparations for sins neither they nor their ancestors committed. Now, where they are guilty of sin, by all means, they should repent with humility and repetition, right? Calvin used to say, we should be repenting every day. You know, so often there's the guy who says, no, I repented of that. He's still doing it. I repented of that. No, we should be repenting. If, if we've committed this sin, we should be passionately devoted to exposing it ourselves and trusting in the compassion of God to be showered upon us in our repentance that we'd be effectively used in the repentance and forgiveness of others. Oddly, those whose ancestors actually are guilty of the vilest of sins so long as the ancestors were of a certain race and those against whom they sinned were of the same race, those sins need not be discussed, much less forgiven. That's what these Christian leaders are saying. So long as you're of a certain race, if your ancestors of that same race committed sins against those of the same race, there's no need for forgiveness there. Don't talk about that. So, why not call sin exactly what it is? Why call it racism if it's not necessarily certain that it is? If one sin against another is committed because of one or the other's race, is racism the actual sin? Is that the actual sin? I think not. I think it might be hatred. I think it might be Abuse, physical or mental or spiritual abuse. It might be disregard. It might be neglect. It might be physical harm. It might be insensitivity. That's sin. It might be slander. It might be manipulation. It might be lying, sexual sin, theft, on and on and on. But is the sin itself racism? First of all, I'm not sure you can know. But second, even if the sin, think of it, if the sin itself is riding in the vehicle of racism, why not just deal with the sin itself? Deal with murder. Deal with slavery. Deal with hatred. Deal with gossip. Call it that. Call it those things. Those things the Bible calls sin and says that those who practice them will not inherit the kingdom of God. Deal with it that way. Why, why cloud it by calling it racism and demanding social justice? Calling the sin racism and requiring a race-based conversation may actually circumvent a discussion about the specific sin. That, of course, may and likely would divert the discussion from forgiveness and reconciliation. 
Is it possible that initiating discussions about race may actually be an unintentional diversion from a potentially productive discussion about the gospel? Could we, while allowing for and being welcoming of those who wish to discuss race, abstain from initiating those discussions and even be willing to gently lead the discussion to the real issue? Justification by faith alone. That's the real issue. Well, point number two. The true gospel of Christ. Look with me at Galatians chapter 1. What a great time we had in Galatians together a number of years ago. Those messages are on our website. Living next door to an Adventist Mecca, you need the book of Galatians. It is the treatise that destroys Seventh-day Adventism. But Paul says this in Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished. Now stop there for a minute. I'm flummoxed. Why? Because Paul knows the Galatians to have been faithful Christians devoted to the gospel of Christ. I'm perplexed, he says that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is Paul's effort to intercept Roman Catholicism. Not that there is another one, But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Know that this is a constant strategic effort of the enemy who hates you. There are those who will distort the gospel. Now again, what do we do with those that we know are believers and we trust them and we thank God for their efforts, be careful. Be careful. Don't run from them. You know, don't determine that they're not believers when they've shown themselves to be believers. But be careful what you read. Can I just say, this is why you need a shepherd? Paul speaks to the Galatian church as a pastor calling believers to be subject to faithful leadership by requiring them to acknowledge that there are those devoted to a false gospel. And listen, friends, it's extremely persuasive. It's extremely persuasive. There are church buildings filled with lost souls. You look at what took place in the medieval period. The many churches that now exist in Europe, they're beautiful. Kimberly and I were, uh, for our 10th anniversary years ago, we went to New York City and we're looking down uh, across Broadway and 
just amazed with the beautiful church buildings there. And so we did just our own short little tour. And it's just, you know, you can't even see them all. And they're filled with dead people. And Redlands, California is not much different. The difference is that in one era, the focus was on liturgy. Not that liturgy is wrong, but it turned out to be dead liturgy. In this era, it's focused on musical nonsense. It's all about the excellence of the music and not at all about the gospel. It's about invoking feelings that make people walk out of there going, oh, that was great. Really, what'd you learn? I don't know, it was great. (laughs) This is a warning. (laughs) I'm astonished. You know, what pastor would not plead with his people to hear his heart of astonishment? Been a handful of times, not many. Been a handful of times over the years in our church where I've felt the need to say to someone, has truth separated us? This is a theme in, in my mind that really boils up and out of the book of Galatians. Truth ultimately separates us believers at the point where believers have embraced a false gospel. This is obvious, right? Paul is saying, who did this to you? Not that there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to this. Even if we were an angel from heaven. Why does he say that? He's calling upon that which would be very, very convincing. Even if I preached to you another gospel. Or guess what? Even if an angel came down from the sky and you're going, that's an angel. I've never seen an angel before, but that's all that could be. And he preaches to you another gospel. Contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be, the term used in the Council of Trent to anathemize those faithful to the one true gospel, let him be accursed. So Paul's words. It's interesting, isn't it? That at Trent, they took the exact opposite of the gospel and applied the same anathema to it. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's just really, really wanting to drive this home, so he says it again. Beware. You know, don't just assume. I always liken this to the idea of a computer virus. No, your computer virus didn't grow in a Petri dish by accident. Somebody designed it because they hate you even though they don't know you. Same with this. It's a satanic design. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
This is what happens in the, in the, the church. I'm talking about the true church. There will be a watering down of the gospel because there's so much drive by those who don't want to be offended. You know, you, you've heard me say this before. I'm not even a little bit influenced at all by someone who would attempt to manipulate me to water down the gospel. But let me just tell you, I'm not talking about my own courage. It's not that I'm some great guy. It's not the idea. I've had excellent training. I've seen examples of men who live the same way, and I'm surrounded by those men in our church who graciously and humbly and lovingly live in light of the gospel. They live in light of the truth of the gospel. And this is why I started this message by telling you, some of you men, it's time for you to start having that weekly cup of coffee with one of those guys and asking the question, how will I be faithfully and effectively involved in shepherding the flock of God that I would one day have the privilege and the duty to be able to look at someone and say, who bamboozled you? Who tricked you? Who did this? You know, yourself, men, some of you, yourself, that light post in the dark world. And you might be thinking, I can't see it. I can't see it. And I'm telling you, I couldn't see it. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. I couldn't see it. You know, I've had some of our men in our leadership say to me, why in the world did you think I was qualified for this? <laughs> because the rest of the elders thought so too. And we watched and we listened and we heard you communicate the gospel not only with faithfulness but with clarity and with power and with passion. That doesn't mean you're going to stand in the pulpit and preach every week. Necessarily it might, but it certainly means that you're going to communicate the gospel with your life and with your words. I wouldn't be a servant of Christ <laughs> if I feared man and went down the path of a watered-down man-made gospel. That's a massive indictment on the man who preaches a gospel that's even a bit off from Scripture. May that never be true of us. Mark 1.15, what did Jesus say? He didn't say, make a decision for me. He didn't say, ask me into your heart. What do you say? Repent. Believe in the gospel. You got to know what the gospel is. Man, I got to tell you, a handful of years ago when I was ministering in another church, I had an idea that I'd get some wrong answers, but I had no idea of the extent when I would ask the question, what is the gospel? And I'm not talking about just the people in the ministry I was responsible for. I'm talking about the leadership. You know, you get answers like, well, the gospel is the good news. And you're right when you say the gospel is good news. And Carl did a great job last week of helping us understand why it's good news. But if that's where it ends for you, you got some splaining to do. Big time. 
What is the gospel? What is this gospel that Jesus says is the singular gateway for eternal life? 1 Corinthians 15. The way we have distilled this, and if you are a member of the anchor, you have agreed in writing and publicly before the members of the anchor uh, that it is your conviction that by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone are you saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Stop there. That's a clue for those who would say, well, what is the gospel? When I posted something on Facebook about the, um, I forget what it was now, I think it was a, a royal wedding, if I remember right. Yeah, that's what it was. I don't remember their names. Sorry, gals. But in that royal wedding, the guy who did the service, the officiant, didn't proclaim the gospel. And so I said something about how, wow, what a, what a missed opportunity. Literally millions of people watching. And a priest, a pastor, a representative of Jesus Christ and his word doesn't take the opportunity to explain what is the gospel. So my friend, who didn't even watch the ceremony, said, well, the problem is your interpretation of the gospel. And I said, no, you don't understand. Not only did he not get the gospel right, it's not that he got the gospel wrong. He made no effort. Well, he says, that's just your interpretation. Why would he say that? Because he's not living in light of Paul's words here where he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. There is a way to know what the gospel is. This is not a mystery in terms of what the gospel is. The gospel itself is a mystery. The reality of what took place in Christ's atoning death is mysterious. How is it possible that one man who did not sin would atone for the sins of many others? How is that possible? That is a mystery. But what's not a mystery is that that is the gospel. I don't know how that's possible. No one knows how that's possible, but that's what it is. It is the atoning death and resurrection of the God-man. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if... You can know that you are saved by the gospel if if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain, unless you believed meaninglessly. People do. You know, there are plenty of people who have heard the true gospel and they have a meaningless or a vain belief Paul says, if you, you, know, you hold fast to the word. Can I just say, this is why we preach the word? This is why we preach the word, and this is why it's so offensive to those who don't hold fast to the word. And we call you to be involved in people's lives. We're calling you to hold fast to the word. 
And some would say, well, wait a minute. Could that be a form of social justice? Yeah, it sure could. Sure could. Behavior modification, requiring people to apply biblical principles who are not saved by the gospel. So there's a fine line between that and evangelism. I'd rather be accused of social justice than be accused of not engaging in evangelism. I sure don't want to be accused of being involved in social justice. You know what will ultimately prove the difference? Relationships. Time. Eventually, a person will know whether you were trying to get him to modify his behavior, to dress better, to comb his hair better. They will know whether you're trying to promote that or humility, integrity, faithfulness, honesty, purity. They will know. And you will know about them, and they will know about you, whether or not you are saved by the gospel, by your holding fast of the word or not. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, yeah, you can say that the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. My older boys can tell you that. And it's true. But what I'm really endeavoring to nurture in them and in me and in you is the ability to flesh that out. What are we talking about when we're talking about the life of Jesus? We're talking about his sinless willingness to obey the Father in every way, with no interruption and no exception. What are we talking about when we talk about his death? We're talking about a death that actually provided forgiveness. And we're talking about a resurrection that proved victory, triumph over sin and death. You take more time, or you could take that much time. Because if you take that much time and you explain it that way, it really hits the heart, doesn't it? Right? Because for the person who's not living with victory over sin, he has to go, oh, yikes. Because I thought, you know, when I walked that aisle and the pastor said, welcome to the family of God, I kind of I thought I was in. No. Romans 1. We'll finish. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, if you've been at the anchor three, four years, and someone can't say this about you, and I mean every word of it, every word of that, there's a huge spiritual problem. I got it again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You say, well, Todd, I've never been off the continent. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. If it's been in your heart 
to invest in Malawi through our gospel efforts. That's what Paul is saying here. You know this, right? Paul's not saying that every Christian to whom he was writing in Rome was spending time in Antioch or in Africa or Egypt. He's saying your faithfulness here within your local flock has spilled over into the surrounding areas and has reached the other side of the planet. And we ought to be able to say that about each other after some period of time. Verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are here in Rome. What in the world, Paul? I've, I already got the gospel. Yeah, but friends, it's the gospel that produces spiritual growth, not just spiritual life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, Paul here references that Judaistic reality, that Israelite reality that salvation came first to the Jews and then also to the non-Jews or the Greek. And then he puts the rubber to the road by saying, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The idea here is that your faith results in the faith of others. Your active work involved in the gospel, is utilized by God in his power, and he saves people through your faithfulness. You don't get credit for that. You're simply being obedient. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by belief. Believe in the gospel and your life will prove it. This isn't about us going out into Redlands and cleaning up people making them look better, filling their tummies. Could be a result, filling their tummies. I don't know about cleaning them up, but let them do that if they need it. But we ought to be serving. We ought to be giving sacrificially. We ought to be loving in ways that people would look at us and say, this is a different kind of love. This is seemingly, in fact, expressive of one who would give his life, but who would show victory over death in his resurrection. Lord, we're grateful for our Savior in his death and resurrection, and we we pray that this morning will prove not just helpful, but really that it would be a fundamental resting place for us in years to come as we think about what it looks like to avoid the pitfalls of the social gospel, of Marxism, of victimization. Not that we would demand that others do that, Lord, help us not to be self-righteous, but help us, Father, to live in light of the cross and the resurrection, that we would be moved in our hearts that you first loved us, that we in turn would love you, and that by our service to the lost and even our service to believers who have been bamboozled, have been bewitched, that we would have opportunity in our relationships with them to explain what the gospel is and what its implications are, that we would honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.